Father, we're thankful that you give us a firm foundation to stand on. We confess that we would build our lives on the sand, that wash away. We confess that oftentimes we still try to do that, but we rest in the firm foundation of Christ. And as we open your word today, Lord, we pray something bold. We pray that you would do work in our hearts, even in hard and dark places, that you would do a work in our hearts through your spirit, maybe to one this morning who doesn't yet know Christ, who hasn't trusted by faith alone and put their trust in him, that they might know Christ, that they might see who Christ is, see what Christ has done for them, that they might have life, that they might truly have forgiveness, that they might know how to walk with you and know you. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if any one of you have ever tried your hand at teaching, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Whether that's teaching your child, whether that's teaching in kids' ministry over here, whether it's teaching a class, whether that's preaching, whether that's being a teacher in a school, teaching is a hard task. It's not the easiest task to communicate knowledge to someone that they would understand it. A difficult task that we often fail at, I often fail at. But one of the things you find oftentimes in teaching is, is to really teach an audience, you have to know them and you have to know what makes them tick. And use of illustration is often helpful. It's often helpful to cement a truth or a piece of knowledge that you're trying to impart. Students, if you have teachers at school, likely that means that there are some teachers that do that better than others in your life. So illustration is important. It's an often used tool by the teacher to help people understand what truth or what knowledge is being taught. And the illustration is usually better if it appeals to the audience. Illustration. You look at scripture, you see Jesus using illustration. You see him using illustration in his own ministry, in his own life to impart spiritual truth to people. You also see that with the Apostle Paul. We've been in Romans a very thick, abstract book with a lot of high theological concepts. The first three chapters, we've learned some really bad news. The bad news that our sin separates us from God, that there's nothing that we can do to earn God's being made right with God, or otherwise, this theological term, being made right or righteous before God. And what we've seen in the first three chapters is a bleak picture that even in our self-reliance, when we try to do life without God, chapter 1, that, that doesn't work. And even if we try our religious self-confidence and rituals and laws to appeal to God, we can't be made right by those things either. And so the way we've described the first three chapters of Romans is this pervasive depravity, this dark hole that we're in because we can't make ourselves right with God. We've described it as this black background, but last week we saw some good news. The good news of the truth of the cross, that Christ would die on a cross for our sins. And we saw what all of that meant. We saw that our need was to be made right with God, that only Christ's righteousness could give us. That's justification. We saw that we were captives to sin, and we had no get-out-of-jail-free card. We had no way of making our own bail. We were captives to sin and Christ redeemed us that he bought us he ransomed us out of that and then last we saw in chapter 3 verses 21 through 31 
that God is just, and God is certainly loving, and he wants to forgive sin, but he is also just, and the Bible says that by no means will the guilty go unpunished. And so God has to punish sin in some way. And so what we saw in the text is that Christ became that punishment for us, to pay for the the wrath of God that comes down. We saw the Old Testament picture of the mercy seat. Remember in the Old Testament law where people would make sacrifice and God would be pleased with that sacrifice. And we said that Christ, big word, $100 word, is the propitiation for our sins, that once we were enemies of God, but because of Christ, we are now family. Amazing truths about the gospel. But how is that applied to you and me? You see Paul beginning to speak about justification by faith, that this grace that we have comes out of this stream. Imagine grace as this stream coming in, this spring coming out of the ground. But it comes to us through the channel or the river of faith. What is faith? Faith is what you're counting on. And so we get to chapter 4, and Paul's explained all these high truths, but he wants to illustrate. He uses the example of someone in the Old Testament that all of his audience would know about and would revere. The example is the example of Abraham. How is one made right by faith alone and Christ alone and the promises of God? And so Paul, like a good teacher, uses illustration. So really, most of chapter 4 that we'll be in today is Paul looking back at Abraham and saying, see, Abraham's faith was counted to him. It was credited to him, not because of his works, not because of the law, not because of his circumcision, not because of any other reason other than faith. So turn with me to Romans 4, and we will see Paul crystallize his point to his audience to make it stick so that they can see we are saved by faith alone through Christ alone. So We're going to look at three different things in this text. It's 25 verses, and so we'll just take it in chunks. I'll take the first eight verses and read it, then explain, and we'll continue on from there. So turn in your Bibles, Romans 4. We'll be in um, verses 1 through 8. That's page 941. There should be some Bibles on your chairs if you don't have it. There's some up here. The the text should be up here as well. So Romans 4, 1 through 8. Look at the illustration of Abraham. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, has he something to boast about? But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. As it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that's God, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then he gives another example, verse 6. Just as David also speaks to the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Think about David and his lawless deeds. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Your first idea Your first truth this morning is this. Good works can't earn you credit with God. Good works did not earn Abraham credit with God. And not only do good works not earn you credit with God, but evil deeds or bad deeds, think David for a minute, cannot lose you credit with God either if you've believed upon God by faith. Those true truths are amazing for our lives. They're important for our lives. But think about the reason God chose Abraham. 
I don't know if you knew this, but in Paul's day, in this day, there was a lot of teaching about Abraham. A lot of teaching about Abraham that almost deified Abraham because he was the forefather of the nation Israel. You know how that works in our world? Like people um, of the past are either deified almost even though they have fault or they're villainized even though there may be some good in their life. And with Abraham, this is what you see the nation Israel doing. This is what you see the people in the first century Jews doing with Abraham, the forefather of their nation. They almost deified him. If you go and study, I know everybody loves to go study rabbinical teaching. I know that's on high on your list of audible books to read, like mine. But rabbinical, that was kind of funny. Um, but rabbinical teaching taught in that day that it wasn't faith in God in which Abraham was so great. He was, he was such a great moral God that God chose him. And apocryphal readings even talk about how how Abraham reached a place where he was no longer sinful, but he was sinless. See, we often deify people that we want to look up to, even in ways that aren't really helpful. But let me ask you a question. We, we studied the book of Genesis in 2020, and I don't know what I remember in 2020, really, but maybe you remember this from our study in Genesis last year. But when we come to the life of Abraham, we said he was a man of faith and a man of faults. Let me ask you the question, rhetorical question. How, where was Abram when God called him? What did he believe? You see, if you remember, Abraham was a Chaldean, all right? Technically speaking, he wasn't a Jew until the Jews became out of his family. So he was a Gentile, unbelieving Jew. He worshipped false gods. He worshipped idols. He worshipped a moon idol named Nana, and that's not a pet name for grandma, right? He worshiped a moon idol. That's where he was. And God calls him, and if you go to Genesis chapter 12, you see it. God calls him out of that false religion where they worship these false gods. He calls him out of that, and he promises them three things. Land, that he's going to make him, give him all this land of Canaan. He's going to make him a great nation to where they could see from every eye the stars of the heavens. That's how great his nation was going to be. And he was going to bless him. And through his children, all the families of the earth beyond Israel would be blessed. And verse 4 in chapter 12 of Genesis says this. So Abraham went. He left the rest of his family. He took his wife. He had all of his family with him. Think about how hard that is if you've ever been there. And he leaves and he follows Yahweh, this God that came to him and promised him these things. And he goes east and he makes sacrifice at the Oaks of Mamre and he worshiped the name of his God. It's interesting because this was a place in Cana where he probably worshiped Nana, the moon God, and gave sacrifice to her. So, let, so the question is, was Abram some great guy that God looked down the corridors of time at and say, him, he's morally upright, he follows me? The answer is no. He wasn't any of those things. And even after the promise that you see in Genesis 12, what happens? There's a famine in the land, and they go to Egypt. And what does Abraham do? Wives, what does Abraham do? You know. Abraham's scared. He knows his wife is beautiful, and so he says, hey, Sarah, tell the Pharaoh I'm your sister so I can live and he can have you. How about that? So this is not a man of great faithfulness. This is a man that's called 
by God. And you see that on repeat in his life. So he is a great man of faith in that he came out of what he was doing and he followed God. That's great trust in a God. And yet he was a man of fault. And so here's the thing. These folks in first century, they almost deified Abraham. And so Paul is making his argument. Listen, Abraham was not all that great. God credited him. And you see that in Genesis 15. Look at, the, look at verse 3 there. It says, Abraham believed God. He went out. He believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you see that in verse 3? The word counted might be translated in your Bible as reckoned. It's the accounting idea of getting credit. That someone puts credit into your account. You and I know this if we work a job. We earn our, from our work, we earn a paycheck. And then at the end of the month or twice a month or whatever it is for you, what happens? Your bank account is credited by your employer. That's not what this kind of credit is. Think about it this way. Remember back, some of you, might be a while, when you went to college. And your parents told you, some of you, when you went to college, hey, you work hard at your grades and we'll take care of the rest. And you know, if you re- this is what happened in my life in college. I got about two-thirds of the way through a, a month and I call mom and dad and I say, I need money. And you know what they did? They put money in my account. It wasn't mine. I didn't earn it, but they put it in my account. And I believed that they would do that, and I believed and I trusted in what they would give to me. And that's the idea here. It's not like a job where you earn credit before God, and God looks at it and goes, okay, you're good. It's more like being the college student whose mom and dad credits your account. It's not yours. It's given to you in this text. God gave Abraham credit that he didn't have a righteousness that he didn't have on his own. God granted it to him through the channel of faith. That's what's going on. So it's not, here's the, here's the point, it's not good works. Good works in Abraham's life did not earn him credit with God. Faith, even faith, is a gift that God gives us through his grace. And then he goes to David. Look at verse 6. He switches to David, and David would be someone every Jewish person would know about as well from the history of Israel. He would know about David and how he killed Goliath and how he's the king of the nation. But we'd also know some other things about David too. When we think about David, we think about all those things, a man after God's own heart, but he was also what? He was also an adulterer and a murderer. So look at the text here. He's appealing to David. David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Because if you really inspected David's life, it wasn't filled with good works oftentimes, was it? And here's the emphasis that Paul puts on David's life in verse 7 and 8. Blessed are those who lawless deeds are forgiven. If you go back to the Psalms, what do you hear David doing? You hear him crying out to God to forgive him of his great sin. And that's the mark of a believer. That's the mark of someone who knows God. It's not that they are perfect. It's that they know they're not and they're willing to repent. They're willing to get downwind of themselves and say, I am a sinner and I need you. And that's the mark that you see in David's life. That he could be forgiven. Whose sins are covered. 
and the Lord will not count his sins. So you see both of those things. You see the idea of good works not being able to earn you credit from God. But here's the thing. Think about the logic of this. If good works could earn you credit from God, it would also mean that the evil things that you do would remove credit from God. That's the logic of good works saving in any way. But here's the beauty if you just look at what Paul does here with David. Not only can good works not earn you credit with God, you can't lose the credit that God gives you by faith. You certainly can have consequence. Think about David's life and the consequence David had because of his sin. That doesn't go away. But David's faith was secure. Even in the great sin that he committed, it was secure. That's the beauty of the truth of the gospel. You can't earn it, but you also can't lose it because you didn't earn it. I want you to think with me just for a minute about how a relationship would look if, in fact, you could earn credit. Would you just think about your relationship with your, if you're married with your spouse? Let's just say before you got married, you had a kind of sit down about how marriage was going to go. And what if, I'll just, I'll just start with the ladies. What if you went to your about-to-be husband and said, okay, we need to sit down and work some things out. You're going to do this, this, and this. Let's just say you say, hey, you got to make $500,000 a year for me to stay in this thing. The moment you don't do that, I'm out. Your body mass index has to be this. You, you've got all these rules. You're going to do 80% of the laundry and the cooking. The lady's like, amen to that. That sounds good. And we'll flip it around. Let's say the man, which is more likely the man would do something stupid like this. The man goes to his fiance and says, hey, this is dangerous territory, by the way. <laughs> you get the idea. I'm not going there. <laughs> Seriously, though. Is that a relationship? Is that a relationship? What would you, how would you live in that relationship? You would live in fear. You would live in fear. There wouldn't be much of a relationship if you kept it together. It's just based on your deeds. You see, God wants more than that. He wants your heart. He wants relationship with you. This is the God that we serve. It's not based on good works. Not only is it not based on good works, it's also not based on religious rituals and rules. That's really where we're going next in verses 9 through 15. So let me read it. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? So he's going timeline of Abraham's life here. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He's a great lawyer. He's a great, he argues really well. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still, still uncircumcised. Genesis 15 to 17. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And that to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul brings up circumcision. Look at verse 13. He's going to bring up the law. For the promise of Abraham as offspring, that he could be an heir of the world, did not come through the law. That's like Exodus 19. Abraham's already gone. He's dead. But through the righteousness of faith. 
For if it is the righteousness adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So here's your second thought today that's really important. The first one's good works can't earn you credit with God. The second one is this. Religious rituals and rules cannot buy you credit or blessing with God either. And Paul's argument is this in verses 9 through 11 about circumcision. So in Genesis 15, that's where Abraham's faith is counted to him as righteousness. In 15. That's 14 years before Genesis 17 where God comes to Abraham and talks to him about his offspring, him being circumcised and his offspring being circumcised. Circumcision was an outward sign of the condition of being set apart as a nation, being clean as a nation, being a great blessing as a nation. So it was an outward sign of an inward condition. It was a sign and a seal that these people are my people. They are different. And so that was, that, that was the purpose of circumcision. And so Paul's argument's really clear. Hey, Israel, hey, Jews who have trusted in Jesus, this is one of the biggest problems in the New Testament between Jews and Greeks who were in the same church. One of the biggest problems, they even had a council about it. The church, all the church came together in Acts chapter 15, and they had to make a decision because some of the apostles even were saying, hey, it's faith in Christ, faith alone in Christ, but it's plus. It's plus circumcision. Go read it in Acts 15. There's a big dialogue about it. All the way through the New Testament, you have to see this idea of circumcision. Great. But that what they were doing is that they were trying to add to the gospel. Faith plus. And Paul's point is simply this. No, it's faith alone. He was, God credited to him, gave him, made him right with himself before circumcision. Before the law even came about in Exodus 19. Abraham wasn't even around. So do you see Paul's argument? He's trying to demonstrate to his audience who reveres Abraham that Abraham was a man of faith. And as a result of his faith alone in the promise of God, the future promise of God, because of that, he followed God in obedience with circumcision. He followed God in obedience with good works. You should catch that. You know, when we think about the New Testament, and we've already gone here because we were in Romans chapter 2, and Paul was dealing really with the Jewish believer in Romans 2 that was adding things to the gospel, the religious person. So we've already walked through some of this, but if you think about church history, and you think about how the two signs, if you will, the two symbols of the New Testament that, that God leaves us in baptism and the Lord's Supper, how those have been twisted just like circumcision was twisted in the Old Testament. We tend to twist baptism, the good, sanctifying grace that God gives us in baptism where we mark the believer's life to say, hey, this person is saying they're a believer in Jesus. We're going to celebrate with you. It's symbolic of the death and resurrection of Jesus, how he was raised as a believer in Christ. Now you're saying I've got new life because of Christ, and it's, it's symbolic of the faith that you already have where you're buried with Christ and you're raised with him. And communion, which we take every week, is also meant to be a means of sanctifying grace, where we 
stop and consider what Christ has done for us and we think about our relationship with God and we think about what needs to be made right with him and we're reflecting on the truths of the gospel that we might remember what Christ has done for us that it might influence our life those are beautiful great things that Christ has left for us that we might grow in our faith but they don't save so your sprinkling as a baby did not save you if that's you your first communion did not save you if that's you any more than praying a prayer at camp to get scared to heaven if you haven't trusted, really trusted in Jesus saves you. Any more than I've read the Bible four months without stopping, without missing a day, aren't I so great? That's a great thing, but it doesn't save you. It doesn't put you in any different position with God. We tend toward those kinds of things. And then he talks about the law, and the law is effectively like a, a thermometer. What does a thermometer do? All a thermometer can do is tell you your temperature. It can tell you that you're sick. But see, the beauty of the gospel is and what God does in Christ, it's more like a thermostat. See, a thermostat can't just doesn't just tell you your temperature. It adjusts, it can adjust the temperature for change, and that's the beauty of faith. It changes things like a thermostat in this text you see one of the applications that paul is making is this are we walking in the footsteps of the faith he's asking that to mostly this jewish audience are you really walking in the footsteps of abraham are you trusting by faith in god and so maybe we should ask that question for ourselves as well are you walking in the footsteps of faith? Are you living by faith? Do you have anybody in your life that you can look to, either to the side or who's down the road further than you, to go, man, that person really walks with God. They take the right kind of risk, wise risk, to walk with God. Men and women of faith, do you have anybody like that in your life that you can look to and learn from and grow from? There's great books about saints of old who have already gone, who they've lived through all kinds of trouble, and yet they've shown faith like Abraham. Read them. Learn from them. And last, last way kind of to apply this, and this one really hits home for me. As I think about walking by faith, I often like to live in my own comfort. The comfort of my life and what it tends to make me do is when there is a risk in front of me, a spiritual risk, and I do my SWOT analysis, and the weaknesses are really long, and the threats to it are really long, but I know that God's calling me toward it, or that the Bible is calling me toward it, that because of my comfort, I, I shrink back. Whether it's giving to a ministry or my local church in a way that stretches me, that stretches my checkbook, when I think about Walking by faith to go, hey, making a decision that I know that's going to be challenging in my life, the life of maybe even my family, but I know God's called me toward it, to trust him in it. So what are the comforts or even things that we like to control, ouch, that are ruling things in our lives where it causes us not to take the spiritual risk, faith risk, that God is clearly calling us to. And it might just be simply talking to your neighbor about Jesus or your coworker, 
or someone close to you about Jesus. And you're like, man, that's really hard. It's easier to get along, to go along and get along than having those kinds of conversations. So it might be as small as that or as big as vocation, as big as God is pushing me and has been pushing me in this direction for a really long time and I'm pushing it down because I don't want to take the spiritual risk that this represents. And I don't know what that is for you. I'll just tell you from personal experience, we, we're in men's life, we're doing men's life for our men, and one of the, a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, we were talking about some of the challenges of being a man in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and so on, the different seasons of life. And, and, and for whatever reason, the, the author was talking about your 30s, I'm not in my 30s anymore, your 30s being a season where you, sh- you ought to take risk, you ought to try things, you ought to take jobs, in your 30s, and I thought about that as a 46-year-old, and I thought, you know what? God's sovereign over all of the events of my life and my family's life, and so I believe that. We're right where we're supposed to be always, and yet I look at my 30s, even vocationally, and, and say to myself, I didn't take many risks. I was really comfortable in the job that I was in, and I had felt God pushing me toward a call, a different calling. I was a youth pastor early in my 30s, and I was associate pastor. I would have people ask me, hey, do you want to ever lead a church? And I'm like, and, and I would say, well, I'm just content where I'm at right now. And that's a great, you know, Christianese answer. But on further reflection, what's really was going on is I wasn't willing to take some risk to go where and to do what God had called me to do. And I don't know what that is for you, but what is it that God is pressing on you to say, trust me, I've got you. doesn't mean you're making unwise decisions about your life. You ought to run that through the grid of wise counsel. But what are the risks, the spiritual risks, that God may be wanting you to take? Think about being with your family like Abraham was, and God, Yahweh, who you've never met, comes to you and offers you, and you go. <laughs> you leave everything, and you go. We might get some missionaries out of this deal. I don't know. But seriously, what are the risks that you need to take, that God is pushing you to take? And I look at my 40s and go, I've taken a lot more risk in my 40s. And it's a beautiful thing to, tr- to, to have to trust God where you're at and where you're going. It's a beautiful thing. So let's trust him in that. So maybe you're saying, hey, look, I get it, Pastor The law and circumcision and good works can't buy me credit. But what does faith really look like? What what does it look like? And faith in what? Look at this, the rest of this text. I'm going to read it, verse uh, 16 here. This is what depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed for all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Who is the father of us all? As it's written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, and here's the examples from Abraham's life. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he was considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, speaking about a child and Isaac. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. That's Genesis 12. But he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted, see that word like 10 times in this passage, counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who has delivered up from our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 5-1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith and to this grace in which we stand. We are to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And your third and incredible truth that we have this morning is this. God graciously grants you credit. It's not your credit, but he grants you credit through faith alone and Christ alone. That's the beauty of the gospel. That it's not your works. It's not your rituals. It's none of the above. It's faith alone in Christ alone. And you see it in the life of Abraham. The primary example he's using in this text, and he goes on and on about it, is what? They had to trust, Sarah and Abraham had to trust. See, God had promised them what? Not only land, not only blessing, but seed. Like a great nation. He's 100 years old, never had a kid. What do you think? Do you have any faith that that's going to happen? Sarah laughed at this. She's like, I'm barren. I can't have children. God opened her womb. And they had a child. He promised it. And it says that Abraham continued to believe this, that his faith wasn't weakened. So he got a promise, a future promise, and it didn't look like there was any evidence that this promise would happen. And yet he continued to believe. And as he went waiting, how hard is this, waiting for that promise, it strengthened his faith that God had said what he had said and he promised what he had promised and he would make good on that promise. If you turn to Hebrews 11, with me for a second, I want to show you Abraham's faith, what the New Testament says about Abraham's faith. Hebrews chapter 11, this is like the hall of fame of faith, perhaps you've heard that term, and you see Abraham in the middle of this. As a matter of fact, nobody gets more press in Hebrews 11 than Abraham, not even Moses. Moses loses by one verse, if you're wondering. So look at verse 8, by faith. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. That's Genesis 12. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, Canaan, the promised land. And in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him in the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. He never saw the end of this promise, but he's trusted in God. He never saw them go into the promised land, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, speaking of Abraham's body, as it did in Romans 4, who bore descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains on the sand of the seashore. Verse 17, skip down. Keeps talking about Abraham. By faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And when he had received the promise, who was the act of offering of, of his only son, picture of Christ, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did not receive him back. So he shows the faith of Abraham. Now, Abraham's faith, as we said before, waxed and waned. He showed great faith in his calling. He showed great faith with his son Isaac. He showed great faith to believe that he would have an heir because God had promised it to him, and yet he was weak as well, like you and I. It's interesting when we think about faith alone in Christ alone. You look at verses, the next few verses, that Paul's saying not only was this meant for their benefit, it's meant for our benefit. Verse 24, for it was, it's counting to us who believe in Christ, who was raised from the dead as our Lord, who was delivered up. And if you look at verses 1 and 2, you see what the Reformation would call the five solos of the Reformation, single. Scripture alone, this is what we're in. Scripture alone, 5, 1, and 2, and Chris will unpack this more next week. You're justified by faith alone, verse 1. Christ alone, end of verse 1. Through grace alone, verse 2, to the glory of God, verse 2. Faith alone, Christ alone, were counted right before God. I don't know what you do with the uncertainties of life, but this is sure. You catch that? Faith alone and Christ alone, there's a guarantee. Do you see that word? In this text, there's a guarantee. You are secure. And I don't know about your life for the last couple of years, but I feel like everything is insecure in the life that we live now. Whether it's COVID, the uncertainties that we live in life, that we can rely on God who is faithful. He is faithful. So we can't earn it. We can't lose it. We trust in the Son. I want to close with this. Many of you have seen, probably the, in my opinion, the best war movie out there. Maybe the most clear as it relates to people being in war, of what war really feels like and looks like. Maybe you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. The movie begins with an older man at a graveyard at Omaha Beach, Normandy, France. And then it turns to the storyline. You see the beaches of Normandy, and you see a really brutal scene of the men of our country entering Normandy. And you see this story develop. The story develops into a story of a mom and dad who had lost a number of sons in World War II. And they wanted to get their last son, who hadn't been killed in war, back home to mom and dad. Private Ryan. Tom Hanks plays the part. He gets the orders to go and find Private Ryan. Takes a company of men to go do so. And they find him. And Tom Hanks, who plays the captain, John Miller, who's led this mission, he gets shot. And Private Ryan is with him, and he's standing next to him. And Tom Hanks says to him as he's dying, Earn this. Earn this. And the scene changes, and you see a young Matt Damon, who's playing Private Ryan, turn into the old man from the beginning of the movie. And he's in the graveyard. 
beaches of Normandy. And he kneels down, kneels down next to John Miller's grave. And he says this. He says, every day I think about that day on the bridge and what you said to me. And I hope that I live my life as best that I could. And I hope it was enough to honor the sacrifice that you gave for me. And then he stands up and his wife comes. And remember what he says to his wife? Two things. Tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I've lived good life. We understand the sentiment, the right and good sentiment. Someone gave his life for Private Ryan that he might live his life to the full. We get that sentiment. That's a good sentiment. But there's also a sentiment when you think about that scene that there's almost this torment in this older man. Was it enough? Did I earn it? Was my life lived to honor their sacrifice. There's almost a torment of fear of not knowing if he had earned what this man had given for him. And all I want to say about that is one beautiful truth. There's a better story. As great as that story is, as incredible as that scene is, I get goosebumps every time I see it. There's a better story where one lays his life down for you and for me. And he doesn't say, earn it. He says, receive it as a gift of my grace. So there's no worry about if I've earned it or not, if I've lived a good enough life or not lived a good enough life, that my merit could earn what was given. That's the beauty of the gospel, the good news of Christ. That he's earned for you what you could never earn. But he doesn't turn to you after dying on a cross and says, he doesn't say to you, earn it. He says, the debt is paid. It's finished. Live in me. Live for me. So here's your takeaway. Walk by faith, trusting in the one who has already earned it for you. Let me pray.